Let's look at Psalms 138 today. Father, it is great to be in the house of the Lord. Where else would we rather be today than to gather with your saints, singing the praises of your Son, singing the praises of your great faithfulness, Lord. And Lord, we love that you have demonstrated faithfulness. You are a great example. You are the one we follow. Father, we thank you that we can now turn to your word, that we can find truth and faithfulness there. We can learn to be those full of gratitude, full of thanksgiving. We can be reminded of the gospel that gives us those joys, Lord. And so we ask now that we would be hearers of the words and then we would be doers of the word. And so thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're visiting with us or you've been around, I just finished, uh, I think, a year and a half in the book of Mark. Uh, so we got that done, and what a joy that was to walk with Jesus through his life. But in these next three weeks here, including today, I want to start a short series just on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. And I'm not talking about the turkey and the stuffings and all of that, although I love that. Uh, I am talking about the, the aspect of our lives that the gospel draws out of us. It draws thanksgiving. You'll notice that I've entitled the sermon part one here, but it is gospel gratitude, the heritage of thanksgiving. See, we believe the gospel creates gratitude. The gospel impacts us in such a way that there's a gratefulness that comes from us. We, who did not deserve the salvation, we have we sang so clearly there in that that those last, which are new written verses to greater faithfulness, we did not woo God. We did not come to him as though we were special. He came and got us. We were the ones desperate. We were the ones stuck in our depravity, dead in our sins, unable to save ourselves. And when we understand the gospel, when God pierces our mind and our hearts and we know who he is, there's a gratitude, there's a thanksgiving that flows from us. There's a gratefulness. Can you imagine the world in its state to, to drop in the middle of this how we sing here? Oh, you should sit down front. It's great down here. As we hear your voices expand and, and your joy in, as you read those words and sing those words and think about truth. See, the gospel brings gratitude out of you, doesn't it? It brings thanksgiving out of you. True believers look at that truth of what Jesus Christ did for us and we're overwhelmed with that. We're amazed that he would save us and, and change us from dead men to dead people to alive in Christ with a, with a heritage of eternity. Aren't we amazed at that? See, this is what causes us to have gratitude and thanksgiving. Part of the title I put in here, the, the heritage of thanksgiving or the inheritance of thanksgiving. I, I love the fact that my mom and dad took me to church. Now, my mom and dad couldn't save me. My mom and dad could not, by just taking me to church, pass on some inheritance through that. God had to do that. But that's what inheritance is. That's, that's what we have now in Christ Jesus. We have an inheritance that's imperishable, that cannot be taken away. And that inheritance is full of thanksgiving. Full of it. Brothers and sisters, we will sing of the glories of God forever. When all things are done, when judgment is done and the lost are sent into eternal punishment and the, and the elect are taken into his bride and into heaven for eternity, our main theme will be thanksgiving. You will never understand thanksgiving like that day. And so, Lord, we ask him, we ask our Lord to give us gospel, gratif uh, be gratified and, and, and gratitude in the gospel. And then we have a heritage. I know many of us pray for our children that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Or maybe you have little ones here and have not come to faith yet. What we want them to do is have that inheritance of thanksgiving. And so moms, dads, I hope this encourages you, this message, as we point, the Lord, point, point their little hearts and their little minds towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet you and I need that as well. Well, as we turn to Psalms 138, we begin to drop in the middle of, of course, uh, you know, 176 psalms. And, and, and the psalms were not put into a chronological order. I hope you know that. Those who established the order of the psalms did this for several reasons. They were hoping to create a, 
a trust in the Lord as you read them. An awe, a worshipful uh, understanding of God and, and that you would turn from the things of the world and trust in Him in good times and difficult times. What's interesting about this psalm is the psalm before it. Psalms 137 is a psalm that we find the nation of Israel in captivity and none able to sing. Will you look just across the page with me to Psalms 137? Here we find this nation of Israel captive to Babylon. And they are in the presence of their pagan captors who want them to amuse them with song, and, and yet they can't. The nation of Israel has fallen into disobedience. They are now sent to captivity. And there, they're disciplined by God. And they find it difficult to amuse their captors with song. Look at the first couple of verses of 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. and weren't playing them, they're just hanging them there. They're sitting by this river, they're weeping, they're distraught, they remember Jerusalem, they remember Zion. And then look at verse 3, for there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. Well, this is quite sobering here. They are not joyful. Disobedience has led them to sorrow. And isn't that true today? See, disobedience will not bring you to thanksgiving. Disobedience will not bring you to gratitude. Disobedience always provokes sorrow in us eventually. The wage of sin has always been death and disobedience and sin kills things. It kills marriages. It kills relationships between parents and children. It kills relationships all over. That's what sin does. And here this nation sorrows as they are separated. Death has killed their relationship not only with God but with their own Jerusalem. And what's interesting is these psalms have been uniquely placed together to create a contrast. In Psalms 137, they can't sing. They're under discipline. They're under the harsh treatment of their captors. Oh, but in 38, obedience gives way to widespread worship. It gives, uh, it gives way to a bold confession a humble, bold confession that God deserves praise and he deserves our thanksgiving and worship. Now, Psalms 138 through 145 are eight psalms to believe to be ascribed to King David. Um, and, and they're the last of his psalms in the Psalter. Uh, we don't see any more after this. And we believe these last eight are written by David. And, and you can tell when you read them um, that they, they have the sound of David, Right? There's tremendous praise. If you follow the Davidic Psalms, you hear him praise God over and over. It also has a flavor of deliver me from my enemies. You know, in almost every one of the Davidic Psalms, he asked for delivery from his enemies. I think that's pretty interesting, don't you? God cares when we are mistreated. God cares when there's injustice God cares when we go against those who would uh, seek to silence us or, or put us away. God cares, and David knew that. And you'll see that in this psalm as well. This psalm is, as usual, expresses great thanksgiving with zeal. You can hear and feel the zeal of David as he humbles himself before God but exalts him. Well, every psalm probably lands in some historical period, doesn't it? And not all psalms can we figure out where that lands. There are some psalms we can pinpoint when David was hiding in caves and running from his enemies. And there's other ones we're just not sure where he penned those psalms. But this one, most theologians believe this psalm goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promises him, promises David a kingdom that will have no end and one who will rule forever on his throne. And this is this praise that's coming out of David. Listen to a few verses out of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verse 13. This is God speaking. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There's a promise to David. 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Clearly it's messianic, isn't it? It's speaking of someone beyond David. 
Paul said in, in Acts chapter 13 that, that David died and his bones were with us. So this is looking forward. It's a promise that there's a Messiah coming. There's a promise that the kings and the nations of the world will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Psalms 138 and verse 8, we see that the Lord said, the Lord, David said, the Lord will accomplish what concerns about me. And so I think this psalm is probably a reflection of the promise of a coming Messiah. And David believed that. I love verse 4. We'll get into this a little more in time. But it, it teaches us that the kings of the earth will give thanks. Can you see that right now? It's hard to see that, can't you? The kings, the rulers, the presidents, the, the rulers of all the nations will give thanks to God. They will worship him. Oh, that doesn't seem possible right now, does it? But David knows that's what God is doing. So this psalm will teach us several things. And let me give you a list of things just to be thinking about as we go down through it. One, it teaches us that thanksgiving is an act of worship based on the promises of God. Thanksgiving is an act of worship based on the promises of God. What has God promised? We study the promises of God as we teach verse by verse through the Bible because that draws worship out of us. Because God cannot lie. He will fulfill his word. Second, our worship must come from a thankful heart. Our worship must come from a thankful heart. Ever gone to church without a thankful heart? Probably we should all raise our hand, probably. Really hard to worship, isn't it? We may go through the motions because the band's really good that day. <laughs> but our heart's in it. And if we examine ourselves, we realize that we do not have a heart of gratitude. And so it is hard to really connect with the sermon. It's hard to connect with the singing because our hearts are consumed with ourselves. So true worship must come from a thankful heart. And so you must repeat the gospel to yourself. That's where we find the great thanksgiving. As hell seems to be running rampant on this earth, we can find joy that Jesus saved a wretch like me. Isn't that amazing? And we're able to sing even in difficult times. Third, our worship must be founded in truth. You want to be thankful and grateful? You want to be that type of person? Mom, dad, you want to raise kids that are thankful and grateful? You want to be an example of one who is thankful and grateful? Base it in the truth of God's word. Telling people things that you think might happen. Well, I think. We need to learn the Bible. We need to say, thus says the word of God. Thus says God. This is what he says. Found what we believe. Found it in the word of God, brothers and sisters. Oh, you'll worship. Because you know what? You're not giving them your earthly or human counsel. You're giving biblical counsel. And you'll find great worship there. Otherwise, we may find ourselves just going through motions in the end, devoid of true gratefulness, true thankful heart. And then finally, as we just wrap up our conclusion to our introduction here, um, I like to think, what heritage am I leaving my children? Money? Where's that going to go? What kind of heritage is that? Man, the world's after the dollar, aren't they? No matter what they say, no matter what side of the political aisle they're on, everybody is after money. Follow it long enough, you'll find the money trail, they say. Is that the heritage? And man, praise the Lord if you had families or somebody who passed money down to you, and I praise God that that's how God wants to provide for you. But many of us will never have any of that. Is that where your heritage will be found? What about prestige? What does people think of you? Boy, it's big now. How many followers do you have? And who's on this side and that? Prestige is everything to people, isn't it? That'll lead you right to hell and your children. Do you want to leave a heritage of thanksgiving and gratitude? Worship Christ, believe his word. Worship Christ, believe his word. That's what this church is about. That's what we teach. This is the hill we die on. Believe in Christ. Worship him. Believe his word. Apply it to our life. And God will do the saving. Well, let me give you three points that I think just are uh, applicable and help us understand Psalms 138 in a really special way as we look at this together. First thought is the priority of personal thanksgiving. 
the priority of personal thanksgiving. Well, this, this psalm reminds us that worship involves thanksgiving and gratitude. You'll see that all the way through here. But what often motivates thanksgiving into worship is the confession of God's attributes. One of the things that we see David do often is he talks about the covenant, hessa, hessa is the Hebrew word, the covenant love of God. It motivates him because God declared a covenant that he alone keeps to draw people to himself. He loves us. He talks about his faithfulness and truth. We, we see the psalmist write on this stuff. And so if you really want to engage in thankfulness and gratitude, you must engage with the attributes of God. Who is God? If you've gone through any discipleship here, if you've been through growing in Christ or um, fundamentals of the faith, and, or you've been through DTP and, and, and many other ones that we have, one of the things we always focus on is the attributes of God. You need to know God. God is love. But he is equally God of justice and holiness, right? And when you know who he is, you, you are grateful that he has a relationship with you. The more you understand him, the more you're overwhelmed that he would love me. He would send his son with my name written on his hands. 19 years old, desiring to be, uh, desiring to fulfill a calling of becoming one who handled the word of God, a dear older pastor put in my hands knowing God by J.I. Packer. And then he followed that up by J.C. Ryle's book on holiness. And I began to read that and I began to be one who marveled at God. I was saved. I believed Jesus had died for me, but I began to marvel at who he was. Tried to get my mind around this infinite God. And I became a worshiper. Singling at church was no longer mumbling I was engaged with the words on that screen or in that hymn book, wanting to know those truths. So there's two parts of, of worship that go together. There is this, this thanksgiving and gratitude, but there is this understanding of knowing who God is, of who we worship. And we see that as David proclaims this. Look at the first part of verse 1. I will give thanks to you with all my heart. I will give thanks to you with all my heart. Notice that David gives thanks because God has captured his heart. Notice that little word there, all. Many of you have been listening to my preaching for some years. You know I love to circle the word all in my Bible. Because it fascinates me. It fascinates me that God can capture all of something. We can't capture anything, it seems like, right? But God captures the heart of David. He, he says, I, I give thanks to you. With all of my heart. And, and this is miraculous, isn't it? This is a miraculous thing. The Bible's clear that we're dead in our sins. Our heart has no, oh, no spiritual pulse. And yet God makes us alive. Many years after King David had lived on this earth, a prophet named Jeremiah came along. You remember him. Very difficult ministry. But Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, here's a verse you're very familiar with. The heart is more de uh, deceitful than all else, and it is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? What a statement, right? Jeremiah 17, 9, we know that verse. That's the position of depravity. The heart is sick, it's deceitful. Who can get their mind around it? But don't stop there. Verse 10 goes on to say, I, the Lord, search the heart. Ooh, that's good news. He knows every heart of every man. Verse goes on to say this, I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So left in your dark heart, left to ourselves, he searches that and he gives according to that. Ooh, that's hell, that's eternal damnation. But Jeremiah doesn't quit there. As you drop down and follow this great passage, he comes to verse 14. He cries out and says this, Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. So that's our only hope, isn't it? My heart is desperately wicked. Who can even understand it? Oh, brothers and sisters, this is why the medical community cannot solve the problems of mankind. This is why the... The psycho psychology and psychiatric, I can't say that word, uh, can't solve man's problem because their own hearts are desperately wicked. This is why we turn to the Lord. 
This is why I believe in biblical counseling that God's word can solve the problems of the heart because it's so desperately wicked. And when one calls upon God, as Jeremiah does, heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved. For you are my praise. I love that phrase. See what happens when God saves us, when he heals us and, and saves us, we start becoming worshipers for the very first time. And Jeremiah knew that. Jeremiah goes on later to say that he would, God would take out the, speaking of Israel, but Hebrews relates it to the believer as well, that he would take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Isn't that an amazing statement? You ever crawl out of bed with a, a, a stone? Don't answer that. I mean, that's cold, right? It's cold and heavy. <laughs> Isn't that something you would want to lay down with, right? The Bible says that he gives us, he takes out that heart of stone that can't love God, that's hardened by sin, that has no ability to have a relationship, and he gives us a heart of flesh. Blood pumps through it. It stays relatively at 98.6. We know it's alive, it's pumping, it's moving. God puts something alive within us. We have a heart that now can love. See, thanksgiving is produced by a healed and saved heart. Is your heart healed? Is your heart saved? you got to answer that question. Has God healed you and saved you? Healed you from death, from sickness of sin, and saved you from total depravity? Has God done that? See, the heart is the central center of the, of the physical being. If my heart stops right now, I'm, you're just going to have to drag me away and someone else is going to have to come fin finish this, right? I, I can't kill on. If my heart isn't working, I can't go on. Well, same as the heart looks at the spiritual being. It's the center of what we believe and what we, what we understand about God and where the word of God penetrates. See, salvation starts in the heart. Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, that's why David says, I will give you thanks with all of my heart. See, now you can. I Think about that phrase for a little bit. If you're not saved, how do you, you can't even say this phrase. Lord, I'm going to give you thanks with all of my heart. Well, your heart's dead. <laughs> it has no pulse. But if you're saved, you can say this with David. Lord, I, I, I want to give you, maybe we say it this way, Lord, I want to give you praise with all of my heart. Capture me. Help, help me love you with all of my heart, my soul, my strength, my might. That's what David was after. See, thanksgiving flows from the heart. And thanksgiving must be motivated by salvation. If it's motivated by anything else, you'll fall flat on your face. It takes gratitude to live daily for the Lord. One of the things I love about my salvation is it didn't just save me from the flames of hell. It is my daily motivation to get up in the morning and walk with the Lord. Is it yours? An old Sunday school teacher that taught a lot of us for years that I was under, we used to give the Sunday school answer, you know, Jesus, you know. And uh, he would say, you know, that's a great answer on Sunday morning, but what does that look like on Monday morning? See, what's it going to look like tomorrow morning? Well, the worship of God and the desire to worship God and to love him with all your heart, does that, what does that look like on Monday? I've had a lot of businessmen come through my office through the years and say, Scott, I, you know, I really appreciate your hard work in the scriptures, but you don't know how difficult it is in the workplace. And I said, well, I do a little bit. I owned a cattle ranch, <laughs> drove truck when I went to Bible school. <laughs> and I've been out there. I, I do understand a little bit well, well, you say that we have to live for Jesus all the time, but you don't know how bad it is at my job. And I said, oh, you know, I don't. But is Christ enough? Does he know? Has he been tempted in all ways, yet without sin, to give you help? So we have to remind ourselves, see, that helps us come back and go, Lord, you are strong enough. You can help me in this difficult place to give you praise. Look with me at Colossians chapter 3. I quote a lot of passages, but every once in a while I'm going to stick your finger in a passage. I want you to see it for yourself. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. The gospel gives us the ability to live for the Lord Jesus Christ daily. It gives us the ability to say no to sin. 
to have joy even while doing that. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. It says, so as those who have been chosen by God, and let's just stop right there. <laughs> what a phrase. Those who have been chosen by God. Why is that true? Because you're dead in your sins. If you're dead and, and have no life um, spiritually, if you're dead, how do you choose God? See, this is the doctrine of de total depravity. It's, it's that point where we understand that you and I, before salvation, did not have the ability to choose God. He chose us. It, and isn't that make salvation so remarkable that God would reach down and know us from the foundations of the world, write our, hands, our names in the hands of Christ as he dies for us, and draw us to himself? See, that's the basis of our worship. That's, the, that's salvation. God chose us. God knows us. God caused us to understand the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you got saved, dear brother and sister, you, God plunged into your heart and mind an understanding that Jesus died for you. You wouldn't have came to that on your own. You might have known that there was a Jesus and that he died on a cross or something, but it, it would not have ever been personal. But at the time of faith, God takes us sinners and plunges the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ into us. That's what it means by he chose you. He calls you out of the world. But look what happens now. Want to talk about a life of gra gratitude now? He, so those that have been chosen by God, now look at this statement, holy and beloved. That's your position as a believer. I mean, let's take the word holy on. The word of holy means absent of evil, absent of sin, absent of any impurities. That's quite a statement, isn't it? That's how God sees us. That's how great a salvation Jesus Christ is, that the word of God can tell you that you are holy before a holy God. We stand in the holiness of Christ, separated from sin, separated from all the impurities that would drag us to hell. I'm holy before God because of his son's doing, not mine. And notice we're beloved. That little word there is a precious word. It has the idea of setting his love on something. It's intentional. It's individual. It's exact. God sets his love upon the one chosen from the foundations of the world. That's intimate. This isn't God just, well, throw something out there and see what sticks. God beloved you, brother or sister. He beloved you. He set his love on you. And then notice the passage as it goes on. Put on a heart of compassion. Now, I love this. See, before you're saved, there's a lot of nice unsaved people out there. Right? We were just in um, Boise and Salt Lake and a lot of Mormonism, a lot of other religions. There's some really nice people out there. But you cannot have gospel compassion without the gospel. This is a different kind of compassion. This is the kind of compassion that Jesus Christ had on people. Having a heart to see people get saved. You have a compassion for the lost. You have a compassion for people around you. This is what the gospel creates. It comes with thanksgiving. It comes with gratitude. And what you get is compassion for others. You show me a saved person, a truly saved person, who's a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll show you someone somewhere and there will have compassion. They just do. And notice it says kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. This sounds like the fruit of the Spirit. Well, it is. This is what you get. Saved people can be kind. I, I don't want to brag on the church too much, but um, not last Sunday because I was gone. Sunday before, I'm walking out, meet a bunch of new people. I'm going out the gate there and uh, out the door. <laughs> um, and uh, they said, we've never been to a church where so many people greeted us. So many people just showed kindness. One person said they got up and gave us our, their seat so we could sit down there. Now that's unheard of in church. People get down, get your Bibles down, get your coat, make sure nobody gets near you. Especially in today's age. Push them away. No, no, no. The gospel gives us compassion. It gives us kindness. That's what it does. It, it produces a joy in us and a thanksgiving. Notice verse 13. It bears with one another. It bears with one another. The word is a, uh, an echo. An echo is the word, the, the Greek word for there. And it means to endure long. The gospel gives you the ability to endure long with people. Lost, saved, church, unchurched. It gives you the ability to endure with them. You bear with one another. Notice that you forgive each other. 
And whoever has a complaint against you, just as the Lord forgave you, so you also. A connecting verse, of course, is Ephesians 4.32. Because we've been forgiven, God forgave us in Christ, we forgive others. See, this is what flows from a heart that has been changed. This is what David was talking about. Turn back to Psalms 137, and we've got to go a little faster here. I will sing the praises to you before the gods. I will sing praises to you before the gods. Now, this seems a little bit puzzling statement, doesn't it? (laughs) The Hebrew word here for gods is Elohim. You know that word, don't you? It's God in plural, right? We find that word where? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Plural speaks of his Trinitarian nature, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And so that's a little bit puzzling why that would be used here. And so I, I think it'd be a bit strange if you wrote it this way. I will praise you, O God, before God. So, so I don't think it's that. Some believe that David was talking about the Ark of the Covenant here, that I will, I will praise you before the Ark of the Covenant because the Ark of the Covenant had two cherubim uh, mounted on it and the Shekinah glory filled between that and that's where God uh, resided with them in the tabernacle. And, and so some think that. But verse 2 says he's going to bow down before his holy temple. And so I, I don't think it's that there either. Luther and Calvin both believed it referred to angels. That David was saying, I will sing praises to you before your angels. Uh, possibly an option. They believed in Job chapter 1, verse 6 there. God says that the sons of God, angels, we know that to be angels, appeared before him and Satan was with them as well. And so both Luther and Calvin believed that maybe it was angels. Another group, and many in this camp, believe that it refers to idols or false god and false gods, and that David was declaring that God was greater than all of them. And I think that's really possible as well. But I think there's one other better option. Our Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 10, verse 35, quoted Psalms 82, verse 6. And here's what it has. Just listen. I say, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Now, Jesus quotes this verse out of the Old Testament there. And the term gods means somebody great rather than God himself. So he was showing that God, Jesus was showing that God does address men in power, right? You're like little gods. Uh, You're the highest of all creation. You have the ability to decree things and do things and carry things out. This is what Jesus was saying. But then he said, but I am the son of the most high. He was making a distinction between those great leaders that he was speaking to. So what I think David is saying is that my heart is so full of thanksgiving and I am unashamed to sing praises of gratitude before the greatest people on this earth. I don't care if you're president, world-renowned leader. David says, I am unashamed to sing praises before you. You may even think you're a god. Remember in these days, a lot of people did, especially as you move to the New Testament. Roman leaders were thought to be gods. And so whether you're a king or you're a judge or you're the most powerful person on the planet, God is worthy to be praised in front of them. Now this matches with the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Because there, Christ the Messiah will come and he will have a great name and at his name every knee will bow. See how it fits in there? And I think he says, I will sing praises to you before the gods, before the most powerful men in the world. I will sing praises before you. Verse 4 says that he's wanting those kings to sing with him. We'll get to that in a minute. Look at verse 2. I will bow down towards your holy temple. Now, this would have been the tabernacle in David's day. Solomon's temple would not have been built yet as glorious and grandiose as that was. This was just a tabernacle. It was, it was full of skins and, and poles and, and netting and, and all kinds of things that they drug across uh, the desert and then finally set up in Jerusalem. So David, when he was worshiping, he would have looked towards the tabernacle because that's where the glory of God would arrest it. And of course, you know, boy, you look at the end of Exodus. Um, we're going to get there, verse chapter 40, I think, in our midweek study. There, the Shekinah glory fills that temple and everybody backed off as they saw the glory of God. And so David was looking at that and saying, that's, that's where I will bow down towards your holy temple because that's where you're at. Isn't that interesting? 
Hebrews chapter 9 reminds us that Christ came and filled a tabernacle not made with these hands, but one in heaven. And so you and I do the same thing. We bow down to where the Lord is. A lot of the sketches and early writings and some of the things comes from the early church are often depicted of the early church fathers as ones that would be wide open, eyes wide open, hands to the sky, praying to God, because that's where they believed Jesus was. He was at the right hand of the Father. We had to learn later and probably train our children to bow their heads so they can pay attention, right? So we bow our heads and even fold our hands at times so we can concentrate on praying. Then. But, but that's what we do, right? But even in that, even as we pray here and as we bow our heads in this large room with a large group of people, we, in a sense, are looking towards our God and our Savior. And that's what David's doing here with such gratification and such thanksgiving towards God. Look at um, the next part of chapter 2. And give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and truth. Well, David here praises God by giving him thanks because he asks in harmony with the character of God. Uh, look at this. I give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. He magnifies his name with his character. So he doesn't separate that in any way. Your name is your character. When we hear the name of Christ, where the Bible says that at his name every knee will bow, that's his glory, that's his person, that's who he is. That's all that he has contained in him, um, in an infinity of, of glory and character. That's who it is. And so David says, I give thanks to your name, to your person. And then what comes to his mind, I think this often comes to us as, as human beings, for your loving kindness. You know, this is a word here as a, a hesed. Um, it, is, it means this covenant love. Remember we read just a little bit ago in Colossians chapter 3 where he beloved us. That's the same idea here. God made a covenant to love us. He cannot lie and he will not break his covenant. And so David says, look, I'm going to give thanks. If you don't get anything out of this sermon but this, just go home and say, God, I want to thank you and I want to be grateful to you that you set your love upon me. I, I promise that will start your day a lot different. And that's what David's doing here. He's overwhelmed. And this is the regular motivation that we see David. He worships with thanksgiving. He reminds himself of the attributes of God. And I think that's what we do here today. I could not have picked out a better song before I preached than Great is Our Faithfulness with those two new verses um, that some dear believer wrote and put in there. I had no idea. I wasn't here all week. I got in on a plane late Friday night. I had no idea Hayward was going to have that song sing. I could not have picked another one. You know why? Because it picked out and showed you and I how faithful God is in that song, and that's exactly what David's doing here. See, you and I get up tomorrow morning and walk with the Lord Jesus because God's faithful. And you have to hear that. You have to be reminded of that. And so God's people gain excitement and refreshment when they come together, right? When we come together and hear each other sing and and hear the word of God taught, and we go to our BFGs, and our children get taught, and so forth, and we come home, and we begin to talk about what we heard, it encourages us. But it doesn't always just incorporate. You and I can have the same excitement and refreshment in our, in our personal worship. Oh, there's sometimes when I'm here, I, I'll raise my hands, and sometimes I'll bow my head in worship. But there's things I do in my private life where I'll often lay myself out before God because I'm so overwhelmed that he loved me. In years past, we actually lived in the desert. Um, and I would drive out and spend a day with the Lord and just lay myself out before the Lord at times because I, I was so enthralled with him that he would save me. I was really getting my mind around the scriptures and understanding this great God and now being able to teach to them. I just wanted to spend time with him. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you were overwhelmed with this almighty God that knows everything? He's perfect in truth, perfect in holiness, perfect in justice. He's perfect in every way. When's the last time you told him those things? Is he that glorious to you? I promise you, when you do those things, you'll worship in truth and gratitude and thanksgiving. Look at the last phrase in verse 2. For you have magnified your word according to to all your name. This is a very similar statement. Some of the older translations 
said things like, you will magnify your word above your name. I don't think that was a very good translation of that because God's word cannot be above his character. His character cannot become above his word because his character does, is his word, right? And his word is reflected by his character. And so what David is saying here, and it seems a little bit strange at times when you read this, but he's saying, look, you can't separate the character of God and the word of God. That's why we study God's word. And so maybe you're going through partners and somebody's discipling you or you need to be discipled. One of the things they're going to do, as I said before, they're going to take you through the characteristics of God. And I promise if you study those characteristics of God, you'll become a worshiper. Now, this makes sense when you think about this. If David's giving thanksgiving and gratitude because he believes God has blessed him. He believes that God is going to set on his throne one who will never die, a kingdom that will never be taken away. He's worshiping because of those truths. And he's overwhelmed with that. And David's now fixing his confidence on the word of God. God, you said that you would take someone, there would be someone that would come who would be greater than me, whose kingdom would last forever, that we would never die. And David has fixed his confidence on the word and you think about this, no human life, no earthly dynasty is forever. All human things must perish. Even heaven and earth pass away, Matthew 24, 35. But if God has promised David an everlasting kingdom, then God will surely perform his word. And I want you to think about this, brothers and sisters. If God said, I'm going to take you where I am, you will be also, you put your confidence in his promise. See, I think one of the reasons why we're not grateful and thankful is we don't believe his promises at times. You say, well, Pastor, I I believe it on Sunday. (laughs) Yeah, well, Monday's the hard part. Tuesday afternoon when you're sitting in the doctor's office and they said the scan came back. Is his promises still true? Uh, uh, Hardest when some of our little ones suffer. We've been praying for some of our little ones. That's difficult. Is his promises true? You want to have worship and you want to have gratitude? You want to give God what he deserves? Well, are his promises true when it's difficult? When David's son's trying to kill him and chasing him around? When his best friend, Ahipothel, his one he worshipped in the throngs of God, has joined his, bro- his son to kill him? Is God's promises still true? And see, that's what David's talking about here. I'm basing my worship on the truth of God. In his promises. Do we? Do we or do we soon forget his promises with the busyness of life? See, at the end of the verse, he declares two qualities. God's word and his character. Don't separate them. If you want to have true thanksgiving, believe his word and believe the character of God. Look at verse 3. I love this verse. On the day I called you, you answered me. You made me behold. Excuse me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. David was praising God for his his hesed love, right? This loving kindness. This is that covenant love. And notice it's marked with faithfulness. And and there's just two qualities that that come out. Look, I called you. On the day I called you, you answered me. Isn't that beautiful? How many times you left messages? You know, my truck done? No. My truck done? No, God won't even return my call. Not God. Not God with his children. On the day I called, you answered me, Lord. See, he's talking about the faithfulness of God. This is that personal gratitude and thanksgiving. You were there for me, Lord. When I called, you heard me. Notice this next phrase. You made me bold with strength in my soul. That's quite a statement. You made me bold. You made me able to stand when I couldn't stand on my own. When things got so difficult that I couldn't see through them, you were there. And you didn't just strengthen me physically, you strengthened my soul, which makes me able to stand physically through things. See, what we're doing here today is we're feeding your soul from God's word. I'm not here to feed you and pat you on the back and make you feel good about yourself. I'm here to feed your soul through God's word. That's what I do. That's what studying the word of God is. We're feeding your soul, so you're strengthened. He says, that comes from God. David says, you fed my soul. And when my son turns on me, when my best friend turns on me, when the world hates me and the kingdoms of this world want to destroy me, I choose to believe you, Lord. I choose to believe you. And you said you're going to have a kingdom that will never end. 
and one who will reign forever. And I choose to believe it. See, when you believe that God has made these promises to us, you will find great strength and great hope. Second thought. The first was the longest. We'll move through these last two quickly. The promise of a universal thanksgiving. The promise of a universal thanksgiving. Look at verses 4 and 5 in Psalms 138. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Well, David was praising God for his loving kindness, right? And, and which is his, his covenant love here. But now he's describing a coming day of the Messiah. All the kings of the earth will give praise to you. Remember, he's surrounded by Philistines and Hittites and Amorites and whatever other ites you want to come up with. These people don't love God, right? In fact, they're great haters of God. They hated the God of Israel. They wanted Israel stamped out. They wanted to show that their God was defeatable. But David says, I'm looking forward to when all of the kings will worship you. See, David himself is a king. He knows what it means to be in charge. He knows what it means to be a ruler. But here he looks forward to the day when rulers and kings and great men of the earth will bow down before the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, he could only say that if he believed God's word was true. You're going to give me a kingdom that will never end and one will sit on it that will never die. And he knows that someday all knees will bow. Apostle Paul said it this way. For this reason, after Jesus died, he gave his life even to the point of the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And, um, and, and those under the heaven and under earth and under the earth. And that, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm trying to move fast here. But that's the same thing. David says, every knee is going to bow. I look forward to the day when all will praise you. This is the result of a coming Messiah to give universal thanksgiving. Now, unlike Paul's declaration, David's declaration here is a more of a prayer. He's trusting God's word. And I think this is important for us to this day. We're going through changes in our country. Things are not getting better, they're getting worse. Second Peter, Second Timothy chapter three. That's where the way things are gonna go. But we have hope that God is still in control and we have hope that men, even kings and rulers and presidents will turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And look and listen, when Jesus Christ returns, every king and pauper will bow his knee, willingly or not. And David's desires for these kings to, to bow. I think verse 4 is an amazing thing. There's some people think that when Christ comes, there will be a great shout, right? And, and they, that's what this is talking about when it says, when they have heard the words of your mouth. But as I look more closely at this, I think this is a challenge of, of for David to proclaim who Jesus is. I mean, to proclaim who God is, who this coming Messiah is. For us, it's to proclaim Christ. I think verse 4 is very missional. Our job is to give out that the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. And, and, and that's the job of, of all believers. I think this is part of the Great Commission. When they have heard the words of your mouth. This is, we are the mouthpiece of God in a lot of ways, aren't we? We share the gospel with people. And David desires that the kings of this earth will praise God, see his glory. That's what happens when you get saved. You saw his glory. And David desires all those around him to see that. This is a response of the gospel gratitude in the Great Commission. Let me ask you one question before I move to these last few verses. Who are you sharing Christ with? Do you have anybody in your world that you're sharing the gospel with? See, the Bible tells us that the kings of the earth will praise God. Are you going to be a part of that process or is somebody else going to do your job? See, that's why we share the gospel. We have hope in the promise that God is going to save kings, paupers, doesn't matter. He's going to draw all men to himself, all his elect he'll bring to himself. Do you get to be involved or not? That's why we, this is why our church preaches the way it does and sings it is, sings the way we do because we want us to be a church that is a lighthouse, goes out and shares the gospel with other people. And we watch God draw people to himself. Look at verse five. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. Look at the confidence that David has. Notice the confidence in future worship. I have tremendous confidence that God is going to save. 
if we preach the gospel. He'll save. He draws people to himself. This is what he does. He draws to himself. Notice the last part of verse 5. For great is the glory of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. You know, that's irresistible grace right there. His glory is so great, it is irresistible. When he shines, when he steps back on this earth and comes back, every knee will bow because his glory will push you there. It it will be such an amazing thing. Like when, when God's Shekinah glory filled the temple, they all stepped back and fell down. When Jesus says, I am, I am he, as they arrest him, the whole crowd of soldiers falls down. Can you imagine when his glory is on full display when he returns? Great is the glory of the Lord. Listen, one of the things that we do here is we preach the glory of Christ. And the Bible says, if you lift up the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll draw all men to himself. This is what we do. Look at verse 6. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. So this is David's way of saying, isn't God amazing? He's exalted. He has all things in control. His, his glory is on display in the heavens. Just look, the heavens declare his glory from day into night, right? He, he talks about all exalted God cares about the lowly. Isn't that encouraging? How many of you feel lowly in this world? I have like you know, six followers. Nobody cares. God cares. And here's not the word of just some, you know, worm crawl around. It's the humble. See, Peter and James pick up on this and they say that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. This is where they get this from. They, he opposes the proud. The, the Greek word has an idea of my translation. I translate it this way. He stiff arms the proud. Anybody here need God stiff arming you? That's, <laughs> not none of us do. See, God in his exalted high position, creator of all things, of all things, loves the humble. And let me, let me remind you of this. Nobody gets saved who's not humbled. Nobody shows up and says, God, well, I'm here. I think we can put a bow on this thing. I'm now in. You need me. No, no. When we get saved, we say, oh, God, have mercy on my soul. I'm a sinner and I need you. I need your son's death. See, the way up is always the way down. And that's what David's saying here. He's saying, look, God in all of his exalted position cares about those who humble themselves before him. But those who think they have it all together, those that think they control the world and have all these things going on and all that, he has you at a distance. That's a cold, terrible place to be outside of the arm of God. And David knows that. Look at just our last thought real quickly. Thanksgiving promotes a humble and worshipful dependence. Look at verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the enemies, the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. See, thanksgiving and praise is the result of dependence. Are you dependent upon the Lord? That might be why you don't have a lot of gratitude and thanksgiving and you're not a very happy person. Because you don't have a dependency on God. You were dependent upon salvation, but somewhere along the line, you stopped depending on him. You started depending on your own strength. You add it to one of the solaces. You call it sola bootstraptus. You start trying to pull yourself up. And now you have no joy. You're frustrated with your spouse. You're frustrated with your children. You're frustrated with your job. You're frustrated with all kinds of things because you have been working so hard at pulling yourself up. And, and you have no thanksgiving. You come to church and you're a little bit encouraged, but by the time you get in the car in the parking lot and you're on the way home, you've lost it because you're not dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. David says, look, I walk through the midst of trouble. You're there to revive me. I'm totally dependent upon you. You stretch forth, you, you stretch forth your hand against my, uh, the wrath of my enemies. Yeah, you know, church is going to have a lot of enemies to come. They're not going to put up with our view of biblical view of marriage. They're not going to put up with our view of raising children. They're not going to put up with our view of Christ alone, salvation through a very narrow gate through Jesus Christ. They are not going to put up with that. And guess what he's going to do? He's going to stretch out his hands against the wrath of our enemies. So I believe that. David watched it happen. 
He watched his enemies, his own son, try to kill him, and God stretched out his hand of wrath and took his son's life for it. David knew how God works. He says, your right hand will save me. Well, what's the right hand of God? Well, it's the power, authority, and wisdom of God. That's what the right hand is. And guess who's sitting at what? The right hand of God, Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians 1.24 says, Christ is both the power and the wisdom of God. And David here is praying, don't forsake your work of your hands. Look at the end of verse 8. So if, you're, if your right hand is your power and authority and wisdom, don't forsake that hand. I need it. I need it. Look at the rest of verse 8. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. This, the Apostle Paul says something very similar. Maybe got it from this text. He says, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Look at that. Look at the match that was verses up as we see it there at the beginning of the day. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. He's going to see me through. What are you going through? What are you going through that God is going to see you through? See, that's where thanksgiving comes from. Lord, I have cancer. I don't know how this is going to turn out, um, but I'm trusting you. I know you have a plan for me. You didn't lead me through this to, to drown me, and so I'm going to trust in you. I know you started something in me. You're going to see it through. That's what David's saying. Some of you are growing a little older, and you know that if the Lord doesn't return, he may take you by death in this life. Can you trust him? Can you trust him to take you through? Remember, it's just a shadow of death, right? It's just a shadow. You don't get to see the real death. That's hell and all of that. He may take you through the shadow of death, but can you trust him? And so David says, look, I, I know you're going to accomplish it. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know you're going to accomplish this. And then he puts it to this. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. If you turn back just to Psalms 136, it says your loving kindness over and over. Your loving kindness is everlasting. It says it 26 times. Your loving kindness is forever. Well, I don't know if that helps you, but it sure helps me be a worshiper. God loves me forever. Well, the Bible wants us to know that God is with us. And even when we're anxious, we can pray to him. And this is somewhat of a prayer, isn't it? Of David just speaking, reminding God that he made this promise to him and he can't wait for the kings of the earth to worship him and he's going to be full of gratitude and he knows God's going to accomplish it. This is such a great prayer for us. And I pray that today you will put your faith, not if you're saved in here, put your faith again that God will see you through and begin to worship with thanksgiving and gratitude. Father, we thank you for this time together. It just seems to fly by as we get into your word. But what a joy to, to be reminded that we can be worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can worship with gratitude. We can thank you with all of our hearts. We can praise you even before the great, powerful people of this world. We can bow down towards you, God. Know that you care about us. Know that you care about those who humble themselves before you. We know that you're, you're, you're a faithful God. You're a loving God. And you laid down your son's life to secure us for all eternity. And Lord, we know that we can sing the praises of your name. Because your glory is irresistible. And we pray that we will not forget that. Easy to be reminded today, Lord. I pray you'd strengthen us tomorrow as we get up and live for you. That your glory is irresistible. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me for a closing benediction? O Lord our God, as you cause your light to shine upon us and you constantly dispense your grace in our daily life, May the resulting work create thanksgiving and gratitude in your children. Lord, may you create a heritage of worshipers who generationally are filled with thanksgiving and gratitude. Will you save our children and our children's children? May you make them trophies of your grace, those whom you will rob from Satan in this world and cause them to be worshipers of your divine glory. Amen.